0: Good morning, everybody. I'm Sterling. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, boys, it's pretty good seeing all you drunks in here on a Sunday morning. My goodness. I am really grateful to be here. Uh, through God's grace, this program is sponsorship. I haven't found necessary to take a drink since the 2nd of June, 1981, and for that, I'm truly grateful. You don't have to clap. Don't clap. You shouldn't be impressed by that date, but I'm impressed by that date. <laughs> I'd like to thank the committee for asking me out Mary Beth you you, know, you really kept in contact with me all the time throughout the entire time and I appreciate that and Vance got me from the airport I had a great flight so you know the room was nice the gift was wonderful this has been a fantastic weekend up till now really it has been just
1: <laughs>
0: wonderful um if you just got here today you missed it you really did I mean uh Frank had gave a great talk Um, He talked about the illness, at least that's what I recognized when he was talking (laughs) up here, you know, and and like Polly said, he talked All all the speakers and and Marianne and and Polly and and Bo yesterday, all all talked about the desperation, talked about gratitude, talked about recovery, talked about it all. Um, I got a lot this weekend. I really did. So whatever comes out of my mouth today is probably what's on my mind right now, but Ask me next week; it'd probably be a real spiritual talk. Huh? You know? <laughs> people always say, you know, the, the Sunday morning speaking, uh, the Sunday morning speaker is a spiritual speaker. I don't. I, every meeting of the Alcoholics Anonymous, to some extent, is spiritual, because at least for that hour, you got people sitting in there who are not doing, not, are not doing what they normally do, which is drink and cause some trouble and pain in their lives and in the lives of others. And that's kind of spiritual. It's miraculous. Okay, We've had a lot of miracles stand up at this podium um, this weekend. We've also had even more shuttling coffee. We've had more uh, doing and cleaning up and picking up after and trying to organize and do all this stuff. Because so being on a committee is a labor of love, and it's a lot more labor than it is love sometimes. And that <laughs> that's, that's a deal. So there's been a lot of spiritual things and miraculous things happening this weekend. And if you have been here for it, you have been touched by that. And that's what you have to take out there in the world, because there's a lot less of it out there than you know, there should be. And we've got something really special here, and it should be shared, like a cold, you know. <laughs> you know it should be shared. Um, I was born in Missouri. I, I was born in Knob Missouri. Some of you might know where that's at, Whiteman Air Force Base. And uh, my father was in the service. And then when I turned about six years old, we moved to New York. And and New York is where I grew up. I grew up in Harlem in the South Bronx, where Chris really wanted to be. <laughs> you know, I lived the life, Okay. <laughs> Chris wanted to be there, and if I had known that, we could have traded, man. No problem. But I grew up. I grew up there, and, you know, and, and I often thought that that was the reason why I was the way I was. Because it was the neighborhood. I, I grew up with the 42nd precinct, Fort Apache, in the South Bronx. Probably the toughest police precinct in the city. And, and there was a lot of negative things going on there, but there was also a lot of positive things going on there. I attracted to the negative things. But I also was riddled with fear, like I heard mentioned a lot this weekend, that I had something inside of me that made me feel apart from you. And that thing overrided anything else. I often think that I probably, I was one of those people, I heard a speaker in Sacramento say, I needed a sponsor in kindergarten. (laughs) I think I was one of those people. I really could have used a sponsor in kindergarten, you know? Sitting in there with that first day, because I figured all y'all had been to a meeting on how to live life, I missed the meeting, so I don't know what's going on. You know, I could have called the guy and said, uh, oh, I'm not feeling really uncomfortable and I don't think the teacher likes me, you know? <laughs> and Lucas the Sponsor could have said, eat the cookie, take the nap, no big deal. <laughs> Call me later, you know? But even, even at that time, I don't think I would have really listened because I felt apart from, you know, and I've always, I thought later on that the reasons why I was so weird and the reasons why I did the damaging things to myself and to you that I did was because of where I came from. But that's not true. It really isn't true. It wasn't the environment because I could have grown up in Beverly Hills. I could have grown up six blocks from here. I could have grown up where Chris grew up and I would have still had that fear. I would have still had the feeling that I was apart from you, regardless of where I grew up. You know, I often thought that if I'd had a different family, you know, I was born to a middle class, uh, black family, you know, and I thought that if I'd had the Donna Reed kind of family, if I'd had that leave it to Beaver lifestyle, the A-frame house, the lawn, the newspaper route, I'd have been a different person. But I've been to a lot of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I met people that had that leave it the beaver lifestyle. They're just as screwed up as I am. So I don't think that would have been the difference, you know. So it wasn't the environment and it wasn't the family, you know. We grew up, I grew up a Catholic, you know, again, like, you know, Catholic. I heard when I first came in AA, CIA, Catholic Irish alcoholic. I got two of those three. I'll let y'all figure out which two they (laughs)
1: is.
0: (laughs) You know, but... I went to Catholic school all the way up through my first year of college, so it was like, you know, it wasn't the Catholic doctrine that that, that screwed me up. Some of the nuns that taught me the doctrine were a little screwed up, but for the most part, it was a good and profound type of religion. It still is, and they have some great principles, and I I probably apply more today than I ever did then, because I have them reinterpreted to me through the program of Alcoholics Nomads, through your experience. So I'm, it wasn't any of those things that made me weird. I made me weird. I walked around with something inside of my head that told me I was different from you. And that would have been okay. I could have just been a weird little boy. But it got to a point where it frightened me because I had to keep it from you. If you ever found out how weird, how different, how scared, how crazy I was on the inside, you wouldn't love me. And I desperately needed you to love me. I need you to love me. I don't know why I need you to love me because half the time I don't really like or trust any of you anyway. (laughs) But I desperately need you to love me. So I have to protect myself at all times. And that, that's a heck of a deal when you're only six or seven years old and you're just starting out in life, to say nothing of what happens when puberty kicks in. And, and that was the way it was. And if it hadn't been for alcohol that I discovered at 13 in the South Bronx, you'd have another speaker here this morning because it quieted the storm. I had a maelstrom going through, through my head, okay? I didn't trust my parents. They weren't the parents that I thought I should have. I wanted them to, to know what was wrong, but I didn't want them to know what was wrong. Because if they knew what was wrong, then they'd know what was wrong. You know, now if you understand that, you should have been here this weekend.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, because that was the way it was. I wanted my parents to be able to, to 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 help me, but not help me. You know, and I wanted the world to treat me nice, to to love me. You know, just like Clancy said, love me, make me special just so I can feel a part of. And that, that wasn't happening. And as far as I was concerned, and if I hadn't discovered alcohol, I'd be dead. I'd have taken my own life. Because it, you know, it was just too tough. When I took that tall can of Col 45 on a summer's day in New York, something happened. Okay? And it does not happen for most folks. In the book, it talks about an allergy and an obsession. Okay? I have a reaction to alcohol that makes me feel differently. After you ingest enough of it, you're going to act differently anyway, whether you're an alcoholic or not. But I have one that makes me feel different. When I took that first tall can of Col 45 at 13 on a summer's day... I felt like I could play sports as well as Reggie Jackson, speak as well as Jesse Jackson, dance as well as Michael Jackson. (laughs) That's what it was about. It changed my perception of everything around me. I was no longer afraid of you. I felt sorry for you because it worked. And if it was still working, I would still be working it. I'd be out today being one of the Jacksons, you know? I'd have been at that wedding reception. (laughs) Or some of y'all might have had me in the elevator with you, which would have been a spiritual experience of a different sort. Is there anybody here from that elevator experience? Oh, boy. Y'all should be speaking. You know? (laughs) Man, I tell you, you get caught in a cramped room with a bunch of drunks. Boy, I tell you. Oh, we do that all the time, don't we? Oh. Oops. (laughs)
1: You know? (laughs) But...
0: But that, 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 drink changed me. That drink changed how I acted and how I behaved. I wasn't so afraid of you, you know, and if, and it was pretty obvious at that time because I went back and got another drink and went back and got another quart bottle. I went, I, I did a lot of alcohol that first time. So, you know, I know I'm a pig. From the gate, I'm a pig. So, you know, I, that was the deal. Alcohol is just but a symptom, like it was said yesterday. It is but a symptom, but it was a solution for me. It was a solution. And, you know, in the top ten lists of my solutions today, it's still there. And it's been a long time since I had one. That's what makes me an alcoholic. When I run out of all options, it's still one. And thank God you guys stick around. And thank God I stick around with you because it's low on the list. But if I stay away from you long enough, it moves up. It's cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient. It'll wait. And it's waiting every day. And we get newcomers pouring in here every day with proof. That it ain't working too well. And we still sit in here every once in a while and get just a little thirsty. That's insane. And that's why the step is so high up on the list over there. The insanity is step two. Because we ain't, we ain't wrapped too tight. Okay? <laughs> By the time we get here, we done hurt a lot of folks. and And it's still a solution. It's still a solution for me. It wasn't it wasn't obvious to high school that I was most likely to be an alcoholic, but by the time I got through high school, I was, I mean, full-fledged. I remember one time, 16, 17 years old, no, it was about 15, 16 years old, new girlfriend trying to impress her, old boyfriend comes to the party, got to be a man, you know, Frank was talking about it, got to be a man, don't feel like a man, feel like a wimp, but got to be a man, you know, and I challenged him to a gin drinking contest, you know, and at 15, you know, you can consume, what, six maybe, you know, <laughs> brand new body, I mean, oh, but I won, I won that gin-drinking contest and passed out, but I won, you know, and we stayed at that party overnight just because everybody was so concerned about my welfare, and when I woke up the next morning and found out what had happened that night before, I was humiliated, I was mortified, but I blamed the whole embarrassing experience on bad onion dip. (laughs) Had to have been the onion dip that put me out. Now, i want by to buy a show of hands. How many people have been pulled over by a deputy sheriff or by a policeman for having one too many tacos?
1: <laughs> you
0: know? I mean, it just doesn't happen. But, see, it couldn't have been the alcohol. So denial was there very early in my drinking career. Blackout was there very early in my drinking career. These are things that, not, that do not happen to normal drinking folks. But it was obvious. If anybody had known that an alcoholic could be 15 or 16 years old, they would have done an intervention right then. But nobody knew. You know, nobody, just just no way. It was legal, it was okay, you know, I mean, it shouldn't have been drinking, yeah, but, you know, boys will be boys. That kind of stuff, they just ignored it. They enabled me. Not because they were, well, because they were ignorant, but it wasn't because they didn't care. See, that's the thing. All alcoholics have more caring folks in their support groups, even when they're in their cups, than anybody else on the planet. We got people who love us. And because they love us, they get hurt. And they get put through the ringer, And then we come in here and we get sober and all of a sudden they're just supposed to be smiling from ear to ear? No. It just doesn't happen that way. You know, those people were concerned about my welfare. That's why they stayed there. And I lied to them and I lied to myself. And that's what I had to do all the time. When faced with the truth, I had to sidestep it. I had to step to the side and go, that isn't me. It's not my responsibility. Yeah, it's yours. If you hadn't given it to me, I wouldn't have gotten drunk. <laughs> How many times you said that, you know? <laughs> It's your fault, you know. That was the deal for me. I had, to, I had a solution, and I wasn't going to give it up, even though there was a cost. And I paid that price until I couldn't pay that price anymore. You know, it was pretty obvious. It was obvious to everybody. My mother was a narcotics officer. Made me real popular in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know. And I, I had a lot of resentments at home. We talked about that. Polly talked about that yesterday, resentments, being that type of drink. And I had a lot of resentments. Because, you know, my full name is Sterling David Holmes III. Now, when you got a Roman numeral at the end of your name, you're supposed to get a country to run. <laughs> we lived in the South Bronx in the projects. Needless to say, I was not heir, prince apparent to the throne, you know. All I got was a little sister that moved in my room. <laughs> Pissed me off. And I was mad at my mom. But my mom said something to me um, when I was young. about 15, 16 years old. She said, if you're going to drink, drink here. Now, people would call that in treatment centers enabling. Your mother was enabling you. She's very calm. No, she was a caring, concerned parent. She had a kid growing up in New York City, running the streets, and she really wanted him to be safe. So she figured if I was going to experiment with this stuff, I'd at least do it at home where she could keep an eye on me and I'd be safe. That's called love. you know. Never confuse enabling a codependency with love or kindness or compassion or consideration. Those are human emotions. That other stuff has just been created lately to put in dictionaries. The deal is people care about people, and alcoholics, have people that care about them. And alcoholics are caring individuals once they get past the illness. See, I was on the, my way to the illness. I couldn't care about mom. I couldn't care about my friends. I could not care about myself. I'm suffering from alcoholism. It's a disease. It's cunning, baffling, powerful, impatient. It's destructive. It's dangerous. And I had it. And nobody knew. So no matter what she did, no matter how much she cared, no matter what the church wanted to do, no matter what the school wanted to do, no matter what my girlfriend wanted to do, and no matter what I wanted to do, I was not going to be able to take care of this disease until it was going to get to its final stages, wherever those final stages were going to lead it. You know, Because ultimately, every drunk stops drinking. Every drunk stops drinking. Just you get to decide when. Today, I have stopped. And it's been a while since I had one. I'm really grateful for that because I had an opportunity to be with you this weekend as a result of stopping some time ago. And I'm really grateful for that. By the time I got out of high school, I was a full-blown drunk. You know, and I think if you're going to really do alcoholism well, there are some people that are half-measuring it, but you know, I think, I think if you're going to do it right, you gotta, you gotta develop a technique, uh, called lying, you know, to yourself and to others, you know, believing your own bullshit, like has been said many times. You gotta have that technique down. You also have to have some other things, you know, so, uh, you have to have an income. Doesn't necessarily have to be your own income, but you got to have an income.
1: <laughs>
0: you got to have a place to crash. Again, doesn't necessarily have to be your own place, but you know, it's, it's sort of. And food is important in the beginning, not that much important in the end, but you know, sort of the beginning, just to get your start, to get established. And you know, and I was lying a lot in New York, and and running into problems where I was getting caught in those lies, and I was having blackouts, and something. You know, when you're 15, 16 years old, asking people what you did, you don't really know how to do that well. So, you know, I, I knew I needed a, pla- a a way to get out. And I figured I'd join a gang. You know, get a, join a gang. And if you're going to join a gang, join a gang with nuclear weapons. So I decided to join the United States Air Force. <laughs> Seemed like a good gang to me. I like the colors. You know, and and I mean, so I, I signed up and I joined the Air Force. and I was on my way to the United States. And what they did, they did not wrestle me to the ground the day I enlisted and Port Jack Daniels down my throat. I've heard many people stand from a podium that have been in the military and say, the military enabled me. Mm-mm. There was For every base I was on where they had an NCO club, they had a library, and they had a church. And I can't tell you where any either one of those are at <laughs> any of the bases that I was stationed at. I mean, because I never found them. I found that club first, and that was it, you know, because that, the opportunity was there. Just because the opportunity wasn't there, that doesn't mean they were making it possible for me to become an alcoholic, full-blown drunk. Alcohol is everywhere. So are drugs. You know, and it's my responsibility, if the stuff is dangerous to me, it's my responsibility to take care of myself. God gave me this thing called life, and all I have to do is maintain it. All I have to do is maintain it. That's my responsibility. But I didn't know that. When I joined the service, they gave me the income, they gave me a place to crash, and they gave me an opportunity for my disease to progress. And I just went to Monterey, uh, California, for a language school, and uh ran into the object of my obsession there. Um Well, to, I had the obsession of alcohol already, but... I ran into the, you know how, you know how it is when we get to those states where we really feel bad about ourselves on the inside and we know that the perfect solution would be something on the outside to fix us. Well, I found that, you know, I figured if I had a better relationship, then I'd, I'd be domesticated and I'd be a little less wild, of course, you know. And I saw her and she was and I said, well, that's what I want. And you know what it is when we want something. We don't stop at anything to get it. You know, so I pursued her relentlessly. And, and the beautiful thing about A's and al is A's chase and al don't run all that fast. <laughs> okay, It's like a slow trot, you know. So it ain't that hard a deal. Yeah, but but every one of us have met that person that we really wanted in our lives, and they sensed the danger. They smelled the fire, you know, the smoldering smoke, and they went, no, thank you, and took off in the opposite direction. But Al-Anon's just kind of keep you in eyesight, you know. Hey, it's okay, you know. So I promised her the world, and I did. I promised her everything, okay, and I truly meant to. This is the thing. I truly meant to come through with the promises. But I suffer from alcoholism. Can't be a son when you suffer from alcoholism can't be a husband when you suffer from alcoholism. can't be a good employee, a brother, a friend. or You can't be those things and suffer from alcoholism, too, because it is, as is quoted, the rapacious creditor. It will take everything from you, your self-respect, your income, your everything. It will take the sweet relationships and all of that. It will do that. And I didn't know I had it. She didn't know I had it. So she said, OK, let's get married. Let's do this life together. And we got sent overseas, and we had a little girl. And before she knew it, I was raising her and that little girl in captivity, you know, and and she had to escape later on. But at that time, it just didn't seem like I was, I occasionally did things that were bizarre, but that it seemed like I was a good person, you know, and that's what she went with. And that's what I thought. And, you know, neither one of us knew that I suffered from that illness. The Air Force didn't know that I suffered from that illness. They figured they had an adult. Surprise. <laughs> You know, there was, there was, we were talking about that adult, the inner child and everything like, oh, man, you know, I just, I wish I had, I wish I had known that I could be so childish. I, my mom drank from time to time, and, and you know, every once in a while, every Saturday or, or so, I would come home, and sometimes mom would be laid out on the floor playing them old Marvin Gaye and, you know, Gladys Knight and the Pips and 45. Oh, yeah, in the old days, we used to have little black discs that had a big hole in the middle, and we we played it on a thing called a phonograph. Um, that's for newcomers. Yeah. And she would be playing these old 45s and um over and over and over again and I'd come home, turn the stereo off and take her off to bed and I'd say to myself, that's disgusting, I'm never going to do that and, and I never really did. I fell asleep on the couch and I played a Earth, Wind & Fire records. So I don't have anything. But, but mom, mom had a drink problem. I think mom drank occasionally. I don't know what demons were inside of mom, you know, cause she was a, she was a frustrated English teacher and went to Howard University and, 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 all of that. And, and I don't know whether mom had a drink, uh, near drink or, or, or a drinking problem or whether she had been an alcoholic or any of those things. I, and I can't be an adult child of one who hasn't admitted to be one, you know, cause I don't call you one until you admit you're one. And you know something terrible happened to Mom in in 1975. Um, I mean 1978. She was crossing the street late for work and got hit by a car, knocked 50 feet, and put in a coma. She never regained consciousness. On the 2nd of September, 1978, she passed away. Now I was already in the service, off in Texas, doing my craziness. I was already married, and my wife had already was on her way to go overseas. And and I hear this, and I come back home. And every one of us that has ever done anything to anybody else at some point in time has always felt a little guilty. And alcoholics, because we're so um, immature emotionally, never get through that guilt. We never process it properly. And it always comes up just like that old movie you never want to watch late at night. It just comes up, comes up, comes up. And all of this came to a head when I saw my mother with all them tubes and stuff sticking out of her you know and when she passed away and we put her in the ground that started the last two years of my drinking and it was crazy and insane drinking because now I had this tape to run along with the other things that I was doing to beat myself up with because I'm a real sensitive person and the things you say to me hurt me but I can't let you know that I've been hurt by you but I'm still trying to figure out what I did to make you say those things and I'm all self-involved and self-centered what's going on with me and why come you don't love me and it, that's a that's a long day <laughs> you know you get up in the morning with that going on and you got to try to dress yourself, show up to work on time, act like an adult. You know, there's a lot of expectations for us, and they don't know how screwed up we really are. So, you know, alcohol It was sort of that, you know, that, it was Bud Light time, you know? And I would go to the bars after I got off of work, and I would try to drink all this stuff down, you know? And I was at happy hour. How come at happy hour nobody's ever happy? <laughs> Goes for two hours, they bring us food and everything. Everything's half price. We should be thrilled to death, but nobody's ever happy. We're all sitting there looking in the mirror, killing ourselves one day at a time, you know? You get sponsors at the bar. I got sponsorship at the bar, you know? I mean, there were guys sitting up there shaking their heads about Vietnam. I stood up there, and after about four or five drinks, I'm shaking my head about Vietnam. I joined in 77. It was over. <laughs> flew over it once, maybe, you know? But I'm shaking my I'm lying, too. I'm running around, having a wonderful time, you know? Young man, 20-something years old. And I'm thinking my life is on, on a roll. Yeah, I was a pretty good worker. Most drunks in the, the grip of the progressive of illness are. We we're great drunks because we we're so concerned that we we're going to get caught. You know, and that was it. But I wasn't a very good husband. I wasn't a very good father. I wasn't a very good employee, and it all came to a head. You know, the Air Force kind of weird. They want you to show up in your right mind and reasonably, you know, sane. And I wasn't doing that on a regular basis. So they figured they'd have to get me fixed. And how they figured to get me fixed was to send me to group. You know, send him to the group. Because a group, he'll be able to understand and become aware of his problems and be able to handle them in a mature and systematic manner and then thus, you know, get rid of this whole deal. They didn't know I was an alcoholic. They sent me to group. I just sat around there from Monday through Friday being in group. And I decided for the six weeks that I was in group, I wasn't going to drink. And that was tough. Monday through Friday, I did a fine job of it. But every once in a while, I would go by the club to see my friends. You know those guys that you drank with? that we're 30, look 50, you know, we're all GIs, American GIs, and we're all talking about being rocket scientists and psychologists, you know, we we aren't wrapped too tight, you know, And, and I go by there to see these guys whose names I can't remember, you know, and my friends, and I'd have a Coke, and we'd tell a few lies, and I'd have another Coke, and we'd tell a few more lies, and then I'd have a rum and Coke, and another beer, and two more rum and Cokes, and the next thing I knew... I was back into it again. You know, I remember reporting my car stolen and it was the only car in the parking lot.
1: <laughs>
0: if you do that, they won't let you drive it home. That's got it. You can't see it. You can't drive it. In Japan, they drive on the wrong side of the road. You know, they drive on the other side. Sometimes I get so drunk I couldn't remember what side to go around so I drive down the middle. That's dangerous. Many times I was some in little, some little town, I woke up next to a, gen, a portly Japanese gentleman singing New York, New York in Japanese, um, and I had to be working three hours, and I was not sure that I was still in country. That's a little unsettling. And it's not behavior that befits a young and up-and-coming military man, you know? So the Air Force decided they'd have to intensify their treatment program, and they sent me to group. And they sent me to group in the, uh, actually, they sent me to treatment in, in the Philippines. Tough place to get sober. Tough place to get sober. Uh, beer's a nickel a nickel. Anything else you want, 25 cents, okay? You can you can really do some major damage to yourself and come home with change. It's great. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: so he sent me down there and I figured, okay, no problem, all right? I'm going to go to treatment, you know, because I had, I had set up this support system that in case I was in trouble, all these people would, you know, do the character re- references for me and they all reneged. Isn't that something? You rely on these people to to help you and then when you call in the markers, they screw it up and just say, well, go. You know, I was expecting that wife who I had made completely dependent upon me, you know, to say, I can, he can't leave. I can't exist without him. And they told her he's going to treatment. She said, fine, it's bye. <laughs> we'll be fine. I set up that job so that I was absolutely essential to be there. And I said, and the job, I told the job, hey, I'm getting ready to go. It's fine, bye. All these people just, so I was pissed off at all y'all when I went to treatment. And I figured I could do 30 days down there, get an Academy Award and be out of there. And, you know, I didn't know that they had seen a couple of drunks before I got there. <laughs> and they kind of knew the cycle, you know. And there was a guy down there who was an ex heroin addict from Brooklyn. Tall guy by the name of JT. I still remember him. He stayed in my case the whole time I was down to treatment. Scared me half to death. You know, and they gave me all the information you can ever possibly put in one brain about alcoholism. I mean, just... Oh, I saw the charts, every Father Martin film I, I saw there. I saw the Jelly Neck chart of recovery. I saw I'll quit tomorrow. I saw Days of Wine and Roses, all this stuff I saw about alcoholism. I felt so sorry for you people. <laughs> the plight of the alcoholic was tragic.
1: <laughs> tragic. We had a vote
0: six months before. Uh, 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 who was going to drink six months after getting out of treatment? And if I had a vote, it was 12 of them, 12 angry men, I like to call it. <laughs> if, they, if I had a vote, it would have been unanimous. Because I was, I was hands down favored to vote six months after getting out of there. And they'd have been absolutely right. Um, I came back to the base, and I knew that it was some place I was going to have to go. It was a place I had seen before. It was a little meeting right next to the NCO club near the recreation center. A little place up at the top of the stairs was a little room called Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked in there. And you know, Chris talked about you know how these how these places look. And I remember walking in there and seeing the pictures of two old white guys on either wall. <laughs> pictures of the little Rockwell thing you were talking about with them sitting, the guys sitting on the bed. And what I thought the two other guys with the Bible, you know, twelve and twelve, which kind of see twelve. I went to Catholic school, so this twelve thing kind of you know, so hmm, you know, twelve, twelve, okay, all right. All right yeah. So I came back there because I was scared. I really was. I was desperate. I was scared. See, I was failure. I had failed at life. I've I've walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, an abject failure. But I suffer from alcoholism, which means you're different from me, and I'm different from you. And until that gets out of the way, nothing you say is really going to make any significance to me. But what breaks that barrier down is what you do. See, because when the newcomer walks in the door, the heart is pounding. The the butt is so tight, you could make a diamond up in there. (laughs) Okay, that's how much fear is going on there. Okay, like y'all, I'm saying something y'all ain't been had no experience with. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you walked in that door and they all smiled at you, didn't you get a little, hmm. What are y'all smiling about? Why are y'all so damn heavy? What is going on here? You know, and if you got that little card you gotta get signed, I mean, it's really a tough deal. And we got to remember that because, like with Chris, many of the people are willing to give you a number, but not all all the time are they willing to take one, you know. We have to welcome newcomers in here, and they should feel safe when they walk in the door. They should feel safe when they walk in the door because we know what they're going through. We above anybody else. And those people were happy to see me. They smiled from ear to ear and they shook my hand and they were warm and they were friendly and it pissed me off. (laughs) How dare you love me when I don't love me. But they were there and they had something. They had a freedom about them. They had an ease and comfort. They had something going on that I found attractive. And I sat at that meeting and I listened to these people talk about things and they would talk about terrible things. Oh, yeah, I remember ramming my car 15 times up against a ravine and I, you know, I barely got out of life. <laughs> and they would just
1: laugh.
0: Oh, yeah, my wife had me committed six times.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm sitting there, I'm just, floored. I'm going, you shouldn't be saying that stuff in public, man. We're on a military installation, you know. There were eight or nine folks in there, and they were just as honest and, as, and just talked about everything that, that alcoholism was. They didn't once call me a drunk. They called themselves a drunk. And that's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our membership grows because the people want to be here. Not because we go out and, you know, make recruiting posters and stuff. They get here. This is the last house on the door. And they stay because they have we have something here that they want. And it should be free for the asking. It should be free. No holes, no strings attached. And those people gave that to me that way. They're, now, I'm going to tell you, if you're new at Alcoholics Now, if you're a newcomer or you're just coming back and you've been gone for a little while, an AA group is cunning, baffling, and powerful. Okay? Because they will make you do stuff you don't want to do. They may, They decided that I needed to make coffee. Now unlike you, Chris, I, I'm a bad coffee maker. I make bad coffee. I make coffee so bad Japanese won't drink it.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. It was bad coffee. And and they said, Well, Sterling, um, we need your help. Fine, okay, what what can I do for you people? You know? And uh they said they wanted they wanted a coffee maker. So okay, I said, okay, I get there. You know standard newcomer stuff, two hours early for a forty five minute commitment. I got the key. And they got this big old thing with coffee and there's like fifteen people coming to the meeting. So I figured 15 of those blue caps in the, you know. Two weeks, they drank this stuff. Eyes closed and just, see, just, But they drank it. You know? And at the end of two weeks, we got in that little circle, and they asked for another, you know, after the Lord's Prayer, we asked for another volunteer. Two, three people volunteered, but they thanked me for my service work. See? That's the deal. Patience, tolerance. We know that they ain't wrapped too tight when they walk in the door. We know that they're scared of us. And sometimes the way they look, we're a little scared of them. (laughs) But love and tolerance is our code, as was mentioned yesterday, okay? These people had nothing to fear from me. And what they did was they they allowed me to make the mistakes here so that I didn't make any fatal mistakes out there. And that was the deal. So for like a little while, a little while went by and they knew, as you can see, I like to talk. So he said, well, Sterling, maybe you should chair our meeting. I thought it was because I was so eloquent, you know? It was because whatever was going through on in my sick little mind, they knew I had to regularly attend these meetings. So they put me in charge and gave me a little hammer in the front so that I could start the meeting and come up with whatever sick little topic was on my head and then they could spend the rest of the meeting 12-stepping me. Okay? I stole my first big book. You know, it was a years of sobriety before I realized that they knew I stole my first big book. Because, see, this is northern Japan. Big books are not like a dime a dozen. It ain't like they had a central office just down the block or something. I mean, you know, they were hard to come and They all had books. And if one was missing, hmm, you know, it wasn't a hard reach. And then they would tell me wrong page numbers to read, to trick me into reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So they did all of this stuff to me. And what it yielded was I was a year sober when I left there. And I was on fire for Alcoholics Novice. This was a great organization as far as I was concerned. It just had one small flaw, one minor little glitch. Just wasn't enough African-Americans in AA as far as I was concerned. Because, see, I was in that room and a lot of the times I was it. So when I came back to the States, I took it upon myself to convert thousands of black people in AA. (laughs) You know, there was going to be an AA the next generation, you know? There were going to be three pictures up on the wall. (laughs) Bill Bob Sterling. (laughs) I went to Washington, D.C., and there was a meeting out on the southeast side of D.C., and there were thousands of black people and alcoholics anonymous, and they were sober longer than me and pissed me off. (laughs) But I came back to the States and got stationed in Florida, and I got involved with a group called the Dedication Group, and they were into service work. The secret for me was I got involved in the beginning with doing stuff for other folks. I didn't really have anything to offer, but I did have the ability to do something for you. See, we got people walking in AA, a lot of times they're tongue-chewing, they're babbling, they can't put two sentences together, but they know how to shake a hand and smile. And if we teach them how to do that, they may stay long enough where they can stand up here and tell you what you did for them. See, that's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we do that collectively. So, you know, I didn't have much going for me as far as program was concerned, but I did have the ability to show up. So they asked me to do things. And I was doing a lot of stuff with this group. I never give up a home group. Never give up a home group. And I'm going to tell you, if you're new, you wonder wondering what a home group is, what, what would make a home group, if you go to this meeting regularly enough so that when you walk in the door, the old-timer in the meeting looks at you and goes, oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's your home group. Because <laughs> they know you well enough to be not thrilled sometimes when you arrive. <laughs> If every time you walk in the door, they're handing you phone numbers, they don't know you. That ain't your home group. So that was it. I got home. I would make it to those meetings regularly. And and there's a lady in my my home group that says, meeting makers make it. And that's true. I went to meetings. I had had the best program in the world, not by a long shot, but I went to meetings. I went to meetings to judge. I went to meetings to compare. I went to meetings to see who smelled like what. But I went to meetings. And I stayed and I participated as best I could, and that's what saved my life there, you know. And then I went to Cali- uh, Colorado Springs, and, and there was an overtime—a meeting we called the Overtimers meeting because we always went overtime. And there was only four of us.
1: <laughs>
0: that was my home group for a while, <laughs> you know. And then, and, I, and it, it would have been—I would have liked to told you that the first two, three, four, five years of my program of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for me was wonderful. That I was a stellar type of, of alcoholic recovering alcoholic but i had this program locked i had how it works memorized six months after i got here didn't apply it for probably about nine years after i got here but i mean the thing was i had it memorized i looked like an AA member hi how you doing i'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, you know and everybody just yeah you know, oh he's been sober so long too you know and it was just great but at home it wasn't happening so i didn't know how to treat her like a newcomer the people at work i judged them You know, because they were apart from me. They weren't God's kids as far as I was concerned. See, y'all were God's kids, but they weren't. And so I didn't have to treat them with the same love and respect and tolerance that I treated you with. So it was two sets of rules. Sterling in AA and Sterling out AA. (laughs) You know, and the deal is when you live a dual life, they start bleeding over into one another and it drives you nuts. You know, we love to run the play, but the play was falling apart. The sets were falling over and everything, and I was losing my mind. I got to a point where I got so dry, I I knew that it was time for the rope or the river. You know, I was either going to kill myself or get a sponsor. Equally tragic decisions as far as I was concerned. (laughs) I decided that I could always kill myself later. I'll get a sponsor for now. That's the way we are, isn't it? It's just, you know, we'll do those things when we absolutely have to, and that was what it was for me. God had a sense of me. he sent me to Omaha, Nebraska. Does not sound like AA Mecca. <laughs> New York, Akron, maybe, but you know, Omaha? Bellevue is a little town south of Omaha. Right off the base of Offutt Air Force Base. And in that in that meeting, in that little town, I ran into the group that was going to become the fellowship that I craved. But it didn't seem like it at first. I mean, because Bellevue is also the name of the uh, state mental institution in New York. <laughs> and that's what I thought when I walked down them stairs for the first time I saw these folks, because they were happy, joyous. And fr- I mean, they were smiling, grab-ass, and they all had suits and ties on. They would just, whoa, 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 you know, and just, and walked up to me with a big smile, ear to ear, shook my hand, offered me a cup of coffee, welcomed me, asked me who I was and all that good stuff, and it pissed me off. <laughs> they had people with th- two, three months saying hello to other folks that were old-timers. I didn't think that was right. They had same two or three mothers reading from the big book at the at the That's blasphemy. You can't have these people. They're too young to be doing that kind. Of, it was they were doing everything wrong.
1: <laughs>
0: but it was something about them. It was just something about them. They seemed to have an ease and comfort about them. And you know, spiritual awakenings will do that to you. It's just so, it's so weird. I've met a lot of people outside of AA that have had spiritual awakenings. They just don't sweat the small stuff. You know, like image. They just don't care because they don't have anything to fear. And these people didn't have anything to fear from me. And I had everything to gain by my association with them. And they were very, very attractive. They pissed me off, but they were very attractive. I got to a point where I knew I was going to need some help. And I met a man. Well, the man met me, really. He walked up to me and he shook my hand, put his hand in mine. And he gave me a little meeting schedule and said, if you want to hide in AA, you, you, you go to these meetings. But if you want what we have, you go to these meetings. Pissed me off. That day I was taking his inventory, the next day I was taking his inventory, and the day after that I was taking his inventory. Now let me clue you in on something. If you're new in alcoholics and you do not have a sponsor, and somebody has done that to you and you have had them up inside your head for three straight days, if they're the same sex as you, ask them to sponsor you. If they're going to be up in your head, at least they can do some cleaning while they're up there. (laughs) Deal. I asked this man to sponsor me in Village Inn, sitting in a little booth, and he said yes, and he gave me some rules, and one of them was to go to the meeting dressed like I am now, to dress up to go to our home group meeting, and I didn't like that idea, but I went along with it, and I can, my first wife can attest to this, every Tuesday night for I don't know how long, I'd be putting that tie, and I used to wear a tie to the bar to try to feel better than all you, you lower companions that I was hanging out with, you know? And I used to wear a tie in Catholic school. I wore a tie in my business before I joined the Air Force. I mean, you know, I'd worn the ties. That was not the issue. But I had to wear one now, and it really pissed me off. And I'd put that tie on. i go, you know, these people are AA Nazis. It's just, that's what they are. They're trying to make some hole in a donut on me. I, I don't think I ever once thought that AA was going to send me to Africa.
1: <laughs>
0: I did, however, think that y'all were going to try to jump me to Jesus or make me shave my head and sell books at the airport. But I never once thought that I was going to become some sort of missionary. And my sponsor verified that. He says, Sterling, you don't have to worry about becoming a saint. Because you are entirely too self centered. So I don't have to worry about that. You know, they're not going to send me to Nairobi. <laughs> but I would put that tie on and I'd get in the car and I'd complain and I would think to myself, I need to fire these folks. Because they're AA knots, they're AA fanatics. I'm going to go to meetings where everybody's pissed off like I'm comfortable with. You know, talking about the problem and everything, you know? And I would get into that. I would go down the stairs and I would shake some hands and I would see some folks. And I would sit down. And by the time how it works, got read, I was fine. I loved everybody in there. About 400, 500 people. And I got to know. them. I got to know. them, And more important, I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. Not willingly, just as a matter of course, because I spent so much time with you. You endeared yourself to me. Some of your stories became so compelling that I spent the whole afternoon the next day thinking about you instead of thinking about me. You know, the wall had started to come down. You started to touch me in ways that I had not been touched before. I started to care more about you than I did my family. And I didn't really care about them all that much. Humanity didn't make much of a difference to me. It scared me, it frightened me, and I was angry and resentful at it. But you people were real because you said things that made sense to me. And you had problems that I could identify with. And more important, you had a solution for them. And it started to mean something to me. And gradually, it took about seven years, I started to learn your stories. And I started to fall in love with you all. And in the course of doing that, my life changed. I mean, I was nine or ten years old, but when I climbed the stairs one evening and asked that woman, do you want to remain married to me? And she said no. Never ask that question if you're not prepared for the answer. <laughs> I was crushed. You know, not because in my mind it was supposed to be, I was supposed to take her with me when I go to things like this. Talk about how I had destroyed our relationship because alcoholics will screw up the lives of at least seven other folks. At least, according to this old timer told me that. At least seven other folks. And I would love to have all seven of those individuals in here, so that when I tell you how great it is to be around me now that I'm sober, I can have them stand up <laughs> and they can say, "You know it is. He's a real threat." <laughs> but they weren't there, and she didn't want to be there. She didn't want to be one of those people because I kept trying to give her Alanon's God, and she didn't need Alanon's God. She had her own. One thing she did not need was me, because I had screwed it up enough where it was irreparable. So when she said no, she didn't want to be married to me, I was crushed. I was, I felt bad as a man, I felt bad as a, as an AA member, I was embarrassed, I was hurt, I was all those things. I survived it. Mainly because I, even though she was leaving me, I had to go to meetings. And it was a man in that meeting who put his arm around me one day and said, you know Sterling, we're blessed to have the only man ever to get a divorce in Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) They're mean, mean people. My sponsor has never really been concerned with my feelings.
1: <laughs>
0: he's more he's been more concerned with my behavior and my actions. Because it's the things that I have done that have talked about how this program is working in my life. You know, it, it's it's said many, many, many times. We gotta remember what you do speaks so loud I cannot hear what you say. That's what newcomers need to see. The best of us, they already know the worst. They already know how much of, of an ass. We can be. But we need to show them the best. So I had to go to those meetings and I had to show that you know I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to sponsor guys and I had to be sponsored and I had to be active, even though I was going through what was called my my mind personal tragedy, terrible situation. But I had to help folks. So I just kept helping folks. <laughs> I don't want to help none of you, but in order to stay sane here, yeah, I got to help you. So I help you.
1: Keep coming back. It works.
0: You know? And what happened was, over a period of time, I got past that, and I started to look at how I was in a relationship, and he helped me do that. My sponsor helped me get through that so that I could ama- understand what kind of person I am in a relationship and resolve not to do the bad stuff anymore. And God had a sense of humor, gave me another relationship. You know, with another person. I got to do it a little different, and it started to work. It started to come together. I got a great gig. I got an opportunity to, to go to, um, uh, to go, to do television. Work as a television weather person. See my in the career in the Air Force, I was a weatherman. You know, and and I got a chance to get on TV and get a little famous. You know, so I was, hey, how you doing, partly cloudy? You know. So it was great. So I'm doing the deal. I'm I'm going to. AA. I got a relationship. I got this job, part time job where I'm I'm getting a little famous. Everything is coming together. I'm finally getting the payoff. I mean, I put a lot of time in this thing, eleven, twelve years. You know. It's starting to come together. The Air Force says, no, nah, we want to uh, put a kibosh on this. We're going to send you west to Sacramento. I want to go. Yeah, well, we understand that, but go west, young man. You know, and since they signed all the checks, I went west. I said goodbye to that family. I said goodbye to that little girl that I had, had brought up. I said goodbye to my girlfriend. I said goodbye to my fellowship, and I went west. And I thought, and I, I, I really thought that there was something going on. The reason why I was being sent west was because something was happening out west. I had a feeling that in Northern California, up in the Sacramento area, there were thousands of drunks dying, and that I had a message of salvation for them. <laughs> so, when my, I imagine I was going to get in this 84 Nissan stand that was all paid for, okay? This 4 of Nissan stands I was going to climb the Rocky Mountains, come out of Reno, and come down into Sacramento on a chariot of serenity, and just save everybody.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, that 4 of Nissan stands is broken, broke down in Wyoming, Cheyenne, Wyoming. The transmission fell out of this.
1: <laughs>
0: I found three things in Cheyenne, Wyoming. An AA meeting, an AMCO station, and a La Quinta Inn. Okay? And when I went to that AA meeting down on Main Street, just next to the Pizza Hut, I saw two old white guys on the wall, a guy named Bill. There's always a guy named Bill in there, ain't there? No, Jim, and a couple of Bobs, you know? And, I, and we had a couple of meetings. And I knew I was home. I had to take the flight. I flew into Sacramento during its worst rain. So I'm weatherman. I, I flew into Sacramento, worst rainy season in Sacramento history. I don't have a car. My sponsor gave me three phone numbers of people that were in Sacramento. People have been sober a while, active in AA, all that good stuff like that. All I do is call these folks. I'd be connected. I'd be right back into the fold you think that I would have jumped at the opportunity. Knowing the love, knowing the kindness, knowing the patience and the tolerance of Alcoholics Anonymous the Fellowship, I should have just strolled right in and said, I'm back. I'm here, you know. I didn't. I judged. I sat there and found out, you guys in California, they were doing it all wrong. And I started to feel lonely. And I called him up. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. You know, and he just said, go to a meeting. And I finally started going back to the meeting. And I found out I can fall in love with you people because your stories are the same. Faces are different. I got another home group there, Sacramento, McClellan Thursday night group. With a lot of old GIs, and they've been sober a lot longer than me, and they didn't take any of my crap, and it was great. And they asked me to make coffee even, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: it hasn't gotten any better. <laughs> But they tolerated me, you know, and I fell in love with the Fellowship of Sacramento, you know, and and here it is. I've got another opportunity. I even got another opportunity to do TV weather. Hey, now, hey, it's all coming together. I'm keeping this relationship with this girl in Omaha because I love her and because I know how to be principled now, because I know how to be a man, because I know how to put these traditions in my life, because I've learned from folks who have done it. Not just read it in the book and tried to apply. I've seen how to do this stuff. Because I was there watching you when you were trying to do it. So I knew I could do it. And it was all coming together. And the Air Force called again and said, we got to send you back east. Oh, back east Alma? my... No, Korea. I said, well, I want to go to Korea. They went, um, we don't care. So I was on my way to Korea. And I was going to do it right. I was going to marry her, go to Korea. <laughs> you know how we do the Alcoholics just, you know, we got our own plan. So I... I and she was Al-Anon, so she kind of went along with it, wondering, you know... <laughs> And we got married, and they canceled the assignment. For some strange reason, I pissed somebody off at the hospital. That's what my sponsor says. I, I don't know. But they canceled the assignment. So I got to go back to Sacramento. Now, I'm married to a woman in Omaha. The fellowship I craved is in Omaha. I got some people out here in Sacramento. My daughter's in D.C. I'm sitting back there in resentment. I've got a resentment. My life sucks. It's all your fault. You know? I'm trying to find somebody to blame. I'm pissed off. I'm back in the dorm. I get four guys to sponsor within two weeks of going back there. I'm sponsoring these guys from a payphone in the hallway. I don't even have a phone in my room yet. And there are four guys wanting me to sponsor. And these guys that I started to sponsor when I went back in Sacramento for the last two years of my military career were the, were the, the quintessential opportunity to sponsor folks. Because they had problems other than alcohol. And it required that I get in the book and start looking for solutions. It required that I had them over to my house regularly. And we had to struggle with and grapple with problems other than alcohol. That we had to deal with things that were life issues. And these guys were young enough and still alive enough and they were sober enough that they needed solutions to those problems. Or else they were going to go back out there and drink. And I, it got important to share my experience, strength, and hope with you all. It got necessary to be on the firing line and it became absolutely vital that I be honest when I did it and that I become vulnerable. The biggest thing that scares me to death is that you find out how vulnerable I really am. And now I had to stand naked, not only in front of him, but them. And that's where the growth took place. Things started to happen. It's miraculous when you do that. When you take a chance and get on the firing line of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're protected. It feels uncomfortable as hell, but the benefits are phenomenal because I watched these men grow up before my eyes. I got to witness what the grace of God can do for a bunch of people personally. Now, I know if you knew what Alcoholics is you were that's all bull. There's no way that can happen. I'm going to tell you, it's already happened to you at least once. I know for a fact. If you've been in a meeting of Alcoholics and and a drunk like me has been talking and you did this. If you did this, it's already happened to you. Because only drugs do this when drugs are stopped. <laughs> Alaniz do this.
1: <laughs>
0: That's the power of one drug relating to another. That's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. We know we have experience. We'll share it with you. We'll give it to you for free. And you get to watch us to see if we put it into practice. And if we do, you get to see what happens to us in our lives. And it's free. All you got to do is show up and be willing to give it a try. Man, I just got rocketed into the fourth dimension. I did all kinds of stuff out here in Sacramento that I didn't know I could do. And I came back after I retired out of the Air Force. I came back here to Omaha, Nebraska, back to Omaha, Nebraska, to the fellowship. I'm retired out of the Air Force. Now i got to find a job. I found a job selling radio. You know, I found out a few things about myself in the last couple of years, because it's been a tough couple of years. In the last couple of years, I found out three things. I don't like being told what to do. I spent 20 years in the military not be, liking being told what to do. I don't like asking money. I spent years of radio sales advertising salesman, not liking that, asking people for money. Now I'm in, in the hospitality industry, and I find out sometimes I don't like people. <laughs> now, if you don't have a program... If you don't have traditions and concepts and steps and stuff to keep you busy, and you have all those things going for you, and you've done the things that I've done, you ain't going to be on the planet very long. I need a program. I need this program to give me some sort of structure and direction, because without it, I'm the jets are going everywhere, and I don't need that in my life today. I want some stability and some serenity, and that's why I have these things in my life. I mean, the last year that I was selling radio sales, it was, oh, it was bad, because I I slipped and fell and broke my ankle in, in three places and was... I was laid up for three months on disability. Now, I'm home with a 19-year-old stepson that, that likes rap music. You know, that's a test of your serenity, i tell you. I don't mind rap music myself, but he was into the real rap music, and it was, like, getting tough. And I got calls from fellow people in the fellowship. I got loving notes and, and correspondence. I got people that were, were checking on me regularly because they were worried that I was going to go nuts. And I didn't go nuts. I was hooked up. I had guys that I was sponsoring long distance and locally. My sponsor, I called him. I read, new pair of glasses. I did stuff that kept me busy and kept me occupied. So I didn't I really wasn't into self all that much when I was laid up with this cast on my left leg. Now, when I got out of radio sales and got into a new job, that's when I got sick. See, it ain't when we got adversity that we get sick. It's when we're making changes. When we started to change, see, that's when the fear kicks in, that little kernel of fear that tells me, Sterling, you're a failure. See, if these people ever find out, you're going to be out of this job, too. And you can't keep a job. You know, the Air Force just carried you along for 20 years. You know, you're not very good at anything. You know, you're not a very good husband, either. You know, your daughter hasn't heard from you in a couple of days. So you're probably not a very good father, either. You know, and all this stuff. I mean, the 2nd of June, my, my birthday last year, I had, I didn't have a job. One of my pigeons had fired me. And, you know, they just sent me some information telling me I was about to give them some more money. You know, one of them bills. So I was feeling real good. But two weeks later, I went down to D.C. to see my daughter graduate from high school, a valedictorian in her class, on her way to Wesleyan University. And I remember her when she made her valedictorian speech, was standing up there with Marion Berry gave her a National Merit Scholarship, and Eleanor Holmes Norton was doing the, the address. She was standing there, and she thanked her dad for all of his help, love, and advice. And I got to sit in the audience. I got to be there when my daughter thanked me for what you have done for me. Because what I did was I treated her like a newcomer. When my my wife, my present wife, and I got married, my ex wife put the bill for my daughter to come out here in the dress she wore. Because I treated her like a newcomer. Somewhere along all of this, the people out there became children of God. And if they are God's kids and you are God's kids, and I love you, I really do. I love you. If I love you and you're just like them out there, i got to love them, too. They're much more work because I don't understand them and they frighten me. But I do know how to be with you and I do know how to do the things you do. And if I do those things, as a consequence, I'm a much better father, husband, employer, employee, just by consequence. That's the stuff that, that's the icing on the cake. The stuff that Bo was talking about being grateful for. The stuff that Frank talks about being now as opposed to them. The stuff that Polly was talking about getting, putting, having in your life as opposed to the other stuff we seem to hold on to. The stuff that Marianne was talking about that, that gives her the dignity that she so desperately looked for. The stuff that Chris was talking about that gives his life focus and direction. That's what's here. I know it doesn't look like it because we're all weird. <laughs> but it is here. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, or if you're old in Alcoholics Anonymous and they just got you just got to a place where you just don't feel comfortable in meetings anymore, I suggest you do one thing. You grab somebody to look at that's brand new and wait for that miraculous time to come when they get it. You know what I'm talking about? When they get it, when the light comes on above their head and they go, you know, if I don't drink, I won't get drunk. <laughs> You know, if I don't drink, I'm going to get drunk. And this guy will be walking around for two or three weeks telling you that a million times and you get sick of it. But if you stick around and watch him tell some other guy that just walked in the door. And if you wait and see that guy get it and then you see the two of them go grab another guy. That's called having a fellowship grow up around you. See, my desire is to be an old black man in Alcoholics (laughs) 9.
1: You know, hunched over,
0: missing teeth, bald head. Not sending the newcomer near me because I'm going to take the inventory like that. (laughs) That's what I want to be. I stand a real good chance of doing just that. If I remember that the principles of the the structure of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship is the place where I have to learn to put those principles in that structure in practice. And that the world out there is where I should be most vigorous. That my primary purpose is to be a testament to the fact that AA works and that it works well. Not just works, but works well. That these are people who should be dead. The natural thing for alcoholics is to drink, die insane. That's it. The supernatural thing is that one day at a time, we can walk around here and look just like the regular folks. And more important, act like them. And we know where we came from. And that's why we have to gather frequently with one another to remind ourselves of where we've come from and to help get more beggars to the bread. That's what it's about. And it's exciting and it's motivating and it's something that's filled with a lot of challenges. And it's sometimes uncomfortable. And in the process, we got to live our lives, too. But it's happening every single day. Certainly happening in St. Louis. I know it's happening in Omaha. I know it's happening in Sacramento, uh, Colorado Springs, Fort Walton Beach, Florida and northern Japan. I know it's happening because I've been there and I've seen it. And one beautiful thing about experience, once you get it. Can't nobody take it away from you. And the great thing about a spiritual experience, it's an everyday deal. It's an everyday deal. I'll close with a little story. A guy was trying to paint his house. And, you know, two-year-old was helping him. You know how two-year-olds, there ain't much hep. <laughs> Even in here sometimes. <laughs> Sorry of you too. Sorry. But and so he said, well, honey, why don't you take, you saw this, this picture of the globe, the entire globe. He tore it up into pieces and told her to, to go in the next room and put it together. Figured to keep her occupied for a couple, couple of hours and get this thing done. She comes out in about five minutes. Done. He's like, whoa, this kid's pretty smart. What's up with that? I, Honey, how'd you get it together so fast? She goes, well, there was a man on the other side. Put the man together, the world came together. That's exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. I came in here with a lot of problems, a lot of issues. A lot of things wrong with my life wrong with you and wrong with the world and all that good stuff. And it's okay and we understand and, and you're probably right. There are a lot of things wrong. But let's put that aside for now. Let's just work on you. Let's get you to a point where you have a relationship with a higher power. Let's get you to a point where you can sit among us and not be in stark terror. Let's just get to a point where you can get through a day having something to do, being of use, to be quiet and consistent. And then let's see, let's take, tackle the world once you have some proper tools. And, you know, it's been a great journey. And if you're skeptical about it, I challenge you to hang out with me for a little while longer, just a little while longer. And at the end of a month, two months, three months, six months, I don't know how long it might be, let's get back together again and and discuss where you've been. Because you'll you'll see the journey is sometimes rocky, but it's a well-worn path, and I invite you to join along with the rest of the gang. I'm grateful being sober. Thank you.